morning we're starting chapter 4 of Acts. I handed out last week PowerPoint notes for this, but we never got to it. So if you save them and brought it back, you can use that. Otherwise, Christy made some new ones. Please turn to Acts chapter 4. Here we go. 1 through 12. Acts 4, 1 through 12. This is where, after the healing of the lame man and the preaching of the gospel, there's a confrontation with the religious rulers. Verse 1. Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priest, the commander of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. Notice that. Using Jesus as the example. So they seized them and put them in custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and a number of men came to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and elders and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power... And in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people that we must be saved by it. Oh, boy. <laughs> Do we have some great verses to contemplate today? Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for giving us this magnificent account of your Holy Spirit convicting, converting, and confronting. And we pray that we'd be people who also with boldness preach the gospel. Help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. So God had healed a lame man, and we saw in previous Sunday schools on this topic that this was in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. In Isaiah 35, it says that when God comes on the scene, the lame will walk. We see other instances of this. So as proof that Jesus is the Messiah, we've talked about the fact that every single time the gospel's preached in the book of Acts, without exception, the resurrection from the dead of Christ is preached. 
And we will see as we go forward in Acts 4 that the issue that concerned the Sadducees, the Jewish leadership, who were in charge of the temple, they weren't that concerned about the fact that a lame man had been healed. What they were really concerned about was the preaching of Christ and the resurrection. And they saw that, the preaching of Christ, as a threat to their authority and hold over the people. And we'll see that in this text. Now in verses 1 and 2, go back to that. Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead, using Jesus as the example. Interesting. Now, you need to know this. The political powers in Israel were mostly the Sadducees. They dominated the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees did, the Sadducees did not. And we'll see this later in Acts when Paul says that he, when there was a big dispute, that he was on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And that started a debate between the Pharisees and Sadducees, deflecting attention from him. And so the thing that concerned them, that caused what happened to happen, was the preaching of Christ and the resurrection. The commander... Strategos in the Greek was the highest ranking priest after the high priest. The term provoke, which I have in green on the slide, means pained or wore out. Or as uh, Dr. Peterson says in his commentary, unable to put up with any more. We cannot tolerate any more of this preaching of the resurrection of Christ. You see, they thought they had gotten rid of him. But he was raised, and now his followers were preaching his resurrection. Notice that they rejected the apostles in regard to teaching the people. They were speaking to the people. And we'll look at this in a bit. I liked how things happened last week. And so I'm going to try this again. Meaning, I'll read the Bible verses. You turn to them in your Bible. But feel free to comment, to share, to question, whatever you need to do. I really like the fact that last week, the gospel came out from the people. Wasn't that great? You can pray for Brian and chitty they're on their way to sri lanka right now but wow wasn't it great what he how he shared and then others shared the gospel that's what i like to hear the gospel so the people were interested in listening to the apostles they were excited about the fact that a lame man had been healed and the same kind of thing happened in luke now we're remembering that luke acts as a two-volume work and that Luke begins themes and narrative streams in Luke 
that are picked up again in Acts to show that God's plan and purpose is going forward through the church even after Christ's ascension into heaven. Now, if you want to turn to Luke 19, 47 and 48, we'll see how this narrative is repeated from Luke. When I found out how this all is laid out 20-some years ago, when I was in seminary, one of my professors recommended a two-volume set called The Narrative Unity of Luke Acts by Robert Tannehill. And I bought it and read it. And that's what got me started. Now, this was in the mid-90s, 20 years ago. And I got so excited about Luke Acts. And I started looking for scholarly works that did justice to this narrative unity. And then I ended up with the privilege of preaching through Luke. And now I get to teach Acts. What can a person ask for in life? Fishing? That's enough. It's sufficient. Okay. Little fishing is okay, too. The disciples did that after the resurrection. Okay, Luke 19, 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Jesus, that was. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men, now it's the same group, the Sanhedrin, among the people were trying to destroy him. Verse 48. And they could not find anything that they might do for what? All the people were hanging on every word he said. So now we have a repeat. This poor Sanhedrin, they don't know what to do. When Jesus was teaching, the people wanted to listen to him and they wanted to get rid of him, but they feared the people. Now what are they going to do? And now, after they crucified him, he was raised from the dead, appeared to many witnesses, and bodily ascended into heaven. Here, the apostles that he sent forth are preaching the resurrection from the dead. And the same thing is happening. The people are hanging on their words. The lame are healed. Now what are we going to do? We're stuck with the same problem we thought we got rid of. You know, dear brothers and sisters, we need to preach the gospel so that the pagans around us are stuck with the same problem. These Christians just won't shut up, will they? Nor should we. Turn with me to Luke 20, starting with verse 19. So we see the narrative unity of Luke Acts. It's a two-volume work by the same author. Luke 20, starting with verse 19. See the same conflict between the Sanhedrin Jesus and later his apostles and the people who wanted to hear the truth. Luke 20, 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him, Jesus, that very hour. And they feared who? The people. For they, the scribes and others, understood he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. 
Verse 21, they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. Now, if you're a good reader and astute, you'll realize that Luke is telling us that these guys have bad motives, right? They really don't care to get their question answered. They want to catch him. They're enemies of the truth, okay? So they said, teacher, we know you speak and teach correctly. So they're setting him up. And you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Brian. Okay, I'm wondering when, okay, here we're seeing that the, they were sending spies out to hear and see what Jesus was doing. If we go back in Luke 6, when Jesus is talking about himself being the bread of life, and uh, I am the bread of life, and... The, That's the, in John 6. Or John 6, I mean. Yes. Uh, the, and why wasn't that enough for them? When he's saying that uh, that would give people everlasting life, him being the, the, the bread of life, why wasn't that enough for these people to go in? What, what more were they looking for him to say? Actually, Brian, if you read John 6, that didn't offend the leaders anymore and offended all of the people. The people left him over that saying. Only Peter and a few of the Peter, Peter and the apostles would listen to him, and they all left because they wanted Moses and the manna, and they were saying Moses gave us manna. What do you have? And they wanted to make him king because they wanted bread. But if you look at Luke Acts, they're hanging on his words, and he's popular with the people. But the Sanhedrin have a problem; they want to destroy Jesus. But they want to maintain their popularity with the people. And so they got to figure out a way to do both things. Now, the charge that they ultimately leveled against Jesus was sorcery, especially according to Mark. Because they said, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And, of course, he was talking about his own resurrection but they were saying only a magician or sorcerer could do such a thing. They were implying that. That was their charge. You might want to read this older book from 100 years ago, Who Moved the Stone, that uh, looks at that. Good question. So his answer was so profound, they couldn't do anything about it, so they're stuck. So they thought they were rid of him, and now the apostles are proceeding along the same lines. Stuff being a Sadducee. Acts 4, 3, and 4. So they seized them, 
and put them in custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So already there's a significant church developing in Jerusalem, in Judea. And remember in Acts 1, in verse 8, Jesus said, you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world after the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And so here we see the Holy Spirit, we'll see that as we go forward here, coming upon Peter and John, and they preached Christ in the resurrection, and they were believers. All of the hostility against the gospel by the religious authorities was unable to stop people from believing the truth. Does anybody see any applications for today? Oh, yeah. The hostility never goes away. My dear brothers and sisters, the hostility against the gospel comes not only from civil authorities, but from religious authorities. They can't tolerate the preaching of the gospel. Even people who call themselves gospel people. That's why it's so great to preach the gospel. Because God's going to use it to save people, and nobody can stop that from happening. So they were seized. Notice I have the, in red the two strong action verbs. Seized is what happened to the apostles. Believed is what happened in the hearts and minds of those who heard them. They heard the message. Eric and I have been claiming that if the gospel is preached, we've been talking about this on the radio a lot as we've gone through Galatians, that God will use that and some people will believe. And once they do believe, they'll be hungry to hear the truth. And if we feed the truth to the ones who have believed, they're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And as they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, they will become people that you can't stop them from sharing the gospel. Neither civil nor religious authority can stop it. This is our message. We have to believe that. If we go by sociology, we'll think of other things that maybe would be better but the fact is, the power is in the gospel. This is how Christ builds his church. Remember Matthew 16, I will build my church. This is how the universal church grows. I hear from people all around the world on our CICministry.org site, and there are believers everywhere in the world. And one thing unites them, they're hungry for the truth. And one thing sorrows them is they can't find fellowship. Even in large cities right here in the United States, believers can't find fellowship. I don't know what to tell them. I don't want to send them somewhere because, because you don't know what they're going to get, and I don't want to be caught endorsing 
whatever. But what we can do is put the gospel out there. It says in Acts 2.41, if you want to turn to that. So then those who had received his word, that is Peter's, were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So they had 3,000 then, now they have 5,000. But this was God beginning his church. Eric and I teach a pre-trib rapture. Some people mock us for that. A lot of people do. And they think, I don't know, that we're escapists or we don't follow somebody's traditions or whatever. And some say, well, if you actually believe in a literal tribulation, if there's a pre-trib rapture, then there'll be no church. So who are all these martyrs? Well, this is what escapes them. We have proven, and Eric has done most of the work on this, that there is indeed a, a rapture of the church before Daniel's 70th week. But here's what I challenge these people about. How long did it take after Christ's ascension for there to be a church? Days. And we're talking about years. We're talking about days. And do you think God can't save people during Daniel's 70th week and for there to be a significant church almost immediately? Well, it's happened before. We don't have any reason to to be thinking like that, that we can't take things literally because then somebody's philosophy is uh, trampled on. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, 21. We'll read through verse 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, 22, 23, 24. I know I've cited this many times, but I've come to the conclusion that it's not possible to wear out a Bible verse. <laughs> you won't look in your Bible someday and it's grown dim and faded because we preach on it too often. Okay? We need to remind ourselves of these things. Here's what it says. For such, in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for signs and Greeks searched for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness Verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The called here has to refer to the inner call. The external call or the universal call goes out to all. And so in Acts 4, 3 and 4, The 5,000, the word in the Greek for men is actually literally men. So there was a bigger crowd than that. They were just counting the males, okay? So those were the ones who heard the inner call. Everybody heard the outer call. Everybody within the sound of Peter's voice, including the enemies of the gospel. 
those who heard the inner call repented and believed. The rest consider it a scandalon, that's what a stumbling block is, or foolishness. And so it is forever. My dear brothers and sisters, do we have any good reason for preaching anything else but repentance and faith? The true call of the gospel? Because those who hear the inner call will respond. The fact that a lot of people consider it foolishness is not reason to hire a sociologist to go figure out what we did wrong. Literally, when I was in seminary and the seeker movement came in, that's exactly what they're doing. Well, all these people aren't coming because of this reason and that reason. We, and so we need psychology and sociology and the therapeutic gospel so people you know, will be attracted to us. And the gospel went right out the window. But we need to have a different understanding that informs our faith. God uses the preaching of Christ and the resurrection, God's wrath against sin, the blood atonement, expiation and propitiation, all of these great and grand and glorious truths that we have, and those who are the called, that's what it says here, the power of God. There's the power of God. And that's how the church grows. Do we know ahead of time who the called are? No. Are they who we would have expected? Oh, no. Remember Brian's story last week? (laughs) This pastor over there was shocked. Well, this guy is saved? They were shocked when I was saved, I'll tell you that. I was the scourge of the people that were praying for me. God saved me. Five and six of Acts 14. Okay, so they put them in jail overnight. They know what to do with them. It's not exactly like Peter and John are going to go running away. I don't think they had bail hearings back then. Okay, Acts 4, 5, and 6. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. Now, just so you're clear... Caiaphas was probably the de facto high priest. Annas had been the high priest from 6 through 15 AD. And uh, let me quote from Dr. Poe Hill's commentary in the New American Commentary series. Quote, Annas is named as high priest. Actually, Annas was high priest from A.D. 6 through 15. And at this time, early A.D. 30s, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the reigning high priest. 
Luke's attribution of the title to Annas may reflect the actual state of affairs. Annas was the most powerful political figure among the Jews at the time. Five of his sons, one grandson, and a son-in-law all acquired the rank of high priest. He may well have been the power behind the scenes, calling all the shots. Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, was high priest from A.D. 18 through 36, the longest tenure of any high priest during New Testament times, unquote, from Dr. Polhill. Now, do you know the difference between the term de facto and de jure? Have you ever heard those? You haven't? You need to know these. It's Latin terms, but it's a concept that applies to us in our nation and certainly applies in the Bible. De facto means by actual practice. De jure means by legal establishment. So applying it to this situation, de facto, Annas is the high priest because if you're going to go talk to somebody, you went to him, the power behind the throne. De jure, Caiaphas was the high priest. But given their society where the elders were respected above the youngers, right? Annas, because of his status, is always going to have more clout than anybody like his son-in-law. So rather than saying somebody found an error, the liberals will point to this. They see we got an error in the Bible. Isn't it amazing how hard they work to find reasons not to believe the Bible? No, it's just speaking de facto rather than de jure by legal establishment. Sometimes we use illustrations for this. What is the speed limit on most roads de jure? 55. What is it de facto? A lot more than that. (laughs) Generally, Minnesotan drivers feel safe 65 and under, right? So you have two different speed limits, although only one has established legally 55. Didn't somebody write a song about that? I can't drive 55. (laughs) Whatever that was. Now, the Sanhedrin had 71 members presided over by the high priest. Turn with me to Luke 22:66. I want to show the narrative unity of Luke-Acts. Now, the same Sanhedrin confronted Jesus. They wanted to be rid of him because he was making trouble for them. Luke 22:66. Why did they consider him a troublemaker? Because the people loved him. And they had large crowds, and they were the Sanhedrin, especially the Sadducees, were cozy with the Romans. And they were afraid that the Romans would see the popularity of Jesus as an insurrection and come and take away the privileges that the Sanhedrin 
held. And so they had to do something about it because they'd rather have the favor of the Romans than to listen to Jesus. Okay? So Luke 22, 66. When it was day, remember the same thing happened here in Acts 4. They waited till day. The council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. Remember Jesus is God incarnate? He knows they won't. Verse 68, And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man, which means Messiah, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Wow. Prediction of his resurrection, bodily ascension into heaven. Allusion to Psalm 110 and verse 1. Verse 70, and they said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Wow. So now in Acts 4, Peter and John are brought before the same ruling body confronted by the same misguided religious leaders over the same issue, the resurrection of Christ. Because if he's going to be seated at the right hand, there's going to be a bodily ascension. Amen. So they were the ones who tried Jesus. Acts 4 and verse 7. And after they had Peter and John stand before them, they would be seated in a semicircle, the 71 members of the Sanhedrin, dominated politically by the Sadducees. They had Peter and John stand before them, and they asked the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? Remember, their motivation is political. The word power in the Greek is dunamis. Name denotes the source of the power. And, of course, they know what the answer is going to be. They'd already heard it. You know, what we don't say can be very significant. You know, by the way, we need to remember to pray for our nation, don't we? It's in the news, this horrendous slaughter of people by Islamic radicals. Notice how, maybe you don't watch the same news channel that I do, but many people, including some generals and important people, are saying it's significant that our civil authorities won't even mention Islam. They won't even say it. Okay? You see here, what they didn't like was that they were saying Jesus the Christ. And he, his resurrection from the dead. If we don't say Islam, then the fact we don't is significant. It means we don't want to confront the real issue. Now, I saw uh, an imman on, what is, by the way, maybe you know this, let me have a little quiz. What does the term Islam mean? 
a lot of you were got it right. Submission. Somebody had a, an honest imam on their show who says this. Islam means submission, not peace. But see, we have leadership who won't even address that. Now, Israel here had cowardly leadership as well. They feared the people. They didn't want to address reality. Now, in this case, it was a good thing, Christ and the resurrection. But they were hoping to try to keep the peace, don't don't ruffle anybody's feathers, try to find some common ground which doesn't exist. And they have a serious situation on their hands. Now, look at Acts 4, 8, and 9. This is significant. By the way, one of the things I learned from it, Tannehill's two-volume work, The Narrative Unity of Luke-Acts, was that Luke uses narrative devices to tell us who is a reliable source, who we ought to listen to. And one of Luke's means of denoting authoritative witness is to say that the Holy Spirit was on someone, or someone was filled with the Spirit. You see this all the way back in Luke 1. We'll look at some of the instances. So here it says, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to this, to a disabled man, by what means he was healed. The Greek word for healed is so-so, saved. Salvation is a theme in Luke-Acts. Because the man was not only healed from being lamed, he was saved from his sins. Elsewhere in Luke, Jesus said, go your way, your faith has saved you. And so sometimes there's a double idea, both healed and forgiven for your sins. So, filled with the Spirit. Now, let's do a little uh, look at Luke-Acts in regard to the filling of the Spirit. Boy, how does this get off base? Turn in your Bibles to Luke one sixty-seven. I wish I would have, of course, this material wasn't um, well understood back in the 70s because Tannehill wrote after that. But I wish I could have understood this when I was in Bible college because we were Pentecostal trying to have this thing, well, the Holy Spirit comes at a later date and fills you, and then you become a higher-order Christian. And... We just didn't understand the narrative unity of Luke-Acts or the narrative purposes of Luke. And so we were trying to create some categories that really weren't in Luke's mind. And the author's meaning is what's important. Now, in Luke one sixty-seven, this is the father of John the Baptist, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, now, Luke is telling us that Zacharias is a reliable witness and what he is saying 
is from God and that we, the reader, should listen to it. That's what Luke's telling us. So we got to get it. Not go to some theory about, well, you can't be filled with the Spirit until after the day of Pentecost. And then there's the second blessing, and then try to see, we were trying to come up with all these categories to cover all the possible instances to come up with a doctrine of the infilling of the Spirit. And then we had people seeking to speak in tongues as evidence that they had the Holy Spirit. But as I've shown in this Sunday school in the past, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we testify about Messianic salvation. There's the one unifying factor that goes through all of the different instances throughout the Bible. And I'm not being harsh. I love the teachers that I had at that Bible college. They were godly men who told me, learn hermeneutics, learn the Greek, stay in the Bible. Now, that's good teachers. And, but we need to always be learning. And when you read Luke Acts, my dear brothers and sisters, and you see the Holy Spirit come upon somebody, you know that they're going to speak something important that you should listen to. Does that make sense? Anybody want to comment on that? <laughs> when you see that the Holy Spirit came upon someone in Luke Acts, it means that there's someone you should listen to. They're a reliable witness. They're speaking the truth. That's what's more important than some ontological categories about degrees of the Spirit. Got it? All right, Luke 167. I already quoted that. Turn with me to Acts 13.48. We know that the work of the Holy Spirit denotes the presence of messianic salvation. And I can say this about those dear Pentecostals, by the way. Brother Phillips and Brother LeVay, uh, Brother Smith and Snow, my dear teachers. They had the gospel and they weren't ashamed to preach it. So I believe the Holy Spirit really did come upon them. However, they were trying to understand that. They did preach the gospel. Okay, hold on. Here it comes. I am reluctant to listen to those kind of guys because there's so many of them have a false gospel, even though they claim to be speaking for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, then it's and not the Spirit. That's how you know. Okay, right, but I, I tend to, you know, in fact, I not tend to, I just reject what they say because I don't, I don't know if they have the Holy Spirit or not. I just go by what's in Scripture. You're right. To That's go how by, heresy if go, has entered the church time and time and time and time again. Good comment. A lot of the TV preachers are false teachers who claim to have the Holy Spirit. They claim to have healings. They claim to speak in tongues or whatever. And they're not preaching the gospel. However, I try to understand whatever was going on in 1972 when I was a new Christian in Bible college. Those guys told me the truth. To my shame, I wanted something even more radical. 
I wanted to be a pietist. And I went into the fringes of the charismatic movement looking for more. That's to my shame. And I thank God that later I came back to the gospel and I contacted them, those men and thanked them for pointing me to the gospel and to the truth. Okay? I'd say the takeaway is look for the gospel and the fact that people are committed to the truth of the Bible. Does that make sense, Steve? The gospel. If they claim some charismatic gifts and they don't preach the gospel, they're false. Don't listen to a word they say. They're having a laughing revival, but they don't preach the gospel. They're false. Don't listen to a word they say. The men I mentioned were all warning against those things. And the, the radical people didn't like them because they didn't think they were radical enough to be real Pentecostals. That's my experience. Yes, go ahead. Uh, in the NASB of uh, that verse up there, it leaves out the word was. So it's then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. That may and be I'm, the implication. The Greek is aorist passive participle. Oh, okay. Aorist would oh, yeah, mean right. something that happened at a point of time in the past. Okay. Okay. But contemporary Greek studies would tell us to make, not to make such a hard and fast rule. We, can, we should have Adam here to comment on this. Yeah, bring the mic over to Eric. He can comment on that. When uh, Bob and I took Greek, the aorist was always understood as what they call punctiliar, meaning point in time. And now it's being defined as undefined. In other words, uh, one thing about the Greek language is it has an aspectual part to it. So aspect has to do with whether the action is ongoing or it's punctiliar. So think of a football game. If the football game is done, it's complete. The score was 23 to 17. That's punctiliar. It's done. It's all been. But if you're watching it, that's an ongoing action. And so the debate is with the heiress, is it punctiliar or is it ongoing action? Is the game done or are you watching it? And what they've come up with, the, the recent theory is the heiress is undefined. You don't know. And that leads to why you have different translations. Until you look in the context. Until you the context. And especially with a participle, the participle is always tied to the head verb, so we'd have to find that. And, okay. Uh, but so, anyway, yeah, yes. that's good. Thank you, Eric. So as we're reading this, knowing the aorist is there, the context would not lead us to believe that at one time Peter was filled with the Spirit, and that was the end of it, because then it would have no as his football game illustration, it would have nothing to say about the current situation. But reading this, we can see that this has everything to say about the current situation. And so what helped me, let me just, I, I want everybody to be able to have the joy of the scriptures and the joy of what God is doing. What helped me so much, see, Back in that Bible college, we were always trying to figure out, okay, what's this got to do with Acts 2-4? And we were always looking around to get the schematic. Okay, they spoke in tongues. Is this a, a further infilling? And we were trying to go through all this stuff and come up with a schematic diagram. When I read Tannehill in the 90s and came to understand this whole narrative unity and authorial intent... I don't, that doesn't even interest me. I'm not trying 
figure out what this has to do with Acts 2-4 and why he didn't speak in tongues here as, as they did in Acts 2-4. That's not the point. To me, that's a big distraction running me off on a bunny trail that leads nowhere. The point is, what Peter says at this instance to these people has the imprimatur of God. And he is about to speak something like Zacharias did that we ought to listen to. Isn't that better? It solves a lot of headaches. A lot of theology books just don't even have to be written. What does Luke mean? Peter is speaking for God. And he called this man saved. Yes, uh, Norm. This whole uh, concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, are we saying that some Christians have more Holy Spirit and some less? I don't think so. No. But, it, you know, it, it's, it's a little That's confusing. what we're not saying. Yeah, right. So sometimes when you read it, it almost sounds like, well, at this moment, he was had a lot more Holy Spirit than he did yesterday or something. And that's, that's not... I'm going to talk about that a little bit next yeah. week. Okay. Where it talks about the fullness of God. Yeah. And then one of my applications is probably going to be Ephesians, be filled with the fullness of God. See, I used to hear that as a higher order pietistic yeah. Christian. And that's not how I see it now. All of us... See, if you look at 1 John 2, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. All Christians are anointed by God. Only Jesus is a specially anointed one, and all Christians can speak forth words of messianic salvation, and it's because of the Holy Spirit. The Luan over here. Thanks for sharing, by the way. Good point. And going off of Norm's thing, it's kind of like um, not everything that Peter said was from God. Like when he stood with Jesus and said, may it never be be that you go to Jerusalem, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That was not obviously from God or God's plan, but this is our tip, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he's speaking for God. He doesn't always speak for God. Listen to what he says now. Good point. Very good. That gets an astute reading. And so does Norm. Yeah, what Luke is saying is listen to him now. Later, when he refused to eat with Gentile Christians, don't listen to him. Okay, the programmatic verse of Acts is Acts 1.8. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Okay, if you want to read Luke, Acts, and particularly Acts in light of the program, when we say a programmatic verse, what we mean is a verse that serves as an outline for what's going to come after. And the themes in that verse will come up again and again and again. So what actually happens in Acts is the Holy Spirit comes upon authoritative witnesses 
and they are his witnesses, first in Jerusalem, Acts 2, and here again in Acts 4, and then in Judea, as it spreads out, now 5,000 are added, and then in Samaria, Acts 8, and then to the uttermost parts of the world, which I think taken in the right context means to the Gentiles all everywhere. And that starts in Acts 10. The programmatic verse for Luke is Luke 4.18, when Jesus speaks in the synagogue in his hometown and proclaims release of captives. So the rest of Luke shows how God releases people from sin. Wow! I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> some, in some ways, I'm disappointed with myself about a lot of different things, but it's all under the blood. But looking back at the 1970s, the first 10 years of my Christian life, I was so confused on so many points. And I would have been a lot better off listening to my teachers who said, learn the Greek, learn hermeneutics, stay in the Bible. They told me the truth. I should have listened to that. Is that bad counsel? No. So, and actually, when I was there, I did learn Greek. I did learn hermeneutics. And I fairly well stayed in the Bible. But the siren song of pietism was singing in my ears. You can't be doing that. You're going to end up being an ordinary Christian. You've got to be a super Christian, a Holy Ghost Christian, an on-fire Christian, a higher-order Christian, a Christian whose spirit is totally perfected and your soul listens to your spirit. That was the one that got me. Watchman Nee's lies. And after years of that, and it all comes to the fact that I finally had to face the fact that being an ordinary Christian would actually be a good outcome. (laughs) Michael over here. No, no, you don't want it? Okay. And when I did, Colossians helped me, by the way. One of my teachers had told me to go study Colossians because he could see I was going astray. I figured out where that teacher was I contacted him and I said dear brother Smith thank you when I was a young student in your class you could see that I was going astray and you could see why and how and you warned me and I apologize for the fact that I wouldn't listen to you at the time but now I realize that you were right And I thank you for pointing this young, confused Bible college student in the right direction. That's uh, my summary of what I wrote to him. And I heard back from him. So that influences me because I feel responsible for the Lord's flock. And I realize that it may have been disappointing to Brother Smith that I didn't want to listen at the time but it had a powerful impact. Because later when I started wondering, why is this not all working out? And then I went back to what I'd been told. Maybe that'll happen to somebody that won't listen to us now. But we're obligated to tell the truth.
because maybe some young Bible college student 15 years later will realize maybe it is the gospel and the scriptures. Maybe it is Christ and the gospel. I did. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for helping us understand what you're teaching us in Luke-Acts. Thank you for these authoritative witnesses who stood up against the very powerful religious authorities of their day and contended for the truth and for the faith. May every one of us be emboldened by the Holy Spirit to confess our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to stand for the truth. Help us to that end. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.